Good evening. Rudy Giuliani's home and office were raided by federal officials acting on a search warrant today. Taxes in Biden, a new drug to help addicts, and the HEROES Act awaits the governor's signature. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, April 28, 2021. The Senate voted 68 to 26 today to confirm former U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power as USAID Administrator. She serves as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in the Obama administration. President Biden is also expected to put power on the White House National Security Council, where she's also served. As the head of USAID, she'll oversee the distribution of billions of dollars in foreign aid. During her confirmation hearing, Power pointed to foreign aid as a way to tackle larger foreign policy issues like countering China. And federal agents raided Rudy Giuliani's Manhattan office and home on Wednesday, seizing computers and cell phones. It's a major escalation of the Justice Department's investigation into the business dealings of former President Trump's personal lawyer. Giuliani, the 76-year-old former New York City mayor, once celebrated for his leadership after 9-11, has been under federal scrutiny for several years over his ties to Ukraine. Reportedly, agents searched Giuliani's Madison Avenue apartment and Park Avenue office. The warrants require approval from the top levels of the Justice Department, signifying prosecutors believe they have probable cause that Giuliani committed a federal crime. A third search warrant was served on a phone belonging to Washington lawyer Victoria Tonsing, a former federal prosecutor and close ally of Giuliani and Trump. Her law firm issued a statement saying she was informed that she's not a target of the investigation. In a statement issued through his lawyer, Giuliani accused federal authorities of a corrupt double standard, invoking allegations he's pushed against prominent Democrats and said that the Justice Department was running roughshod over the constitutional rights of anyone involved in or or legally defending former President Donald J. Trump. Giuliani was central to the then president's efforts to dig up dirt against Democratic rival Joe Biden and his son Hunter. According to reports, the warrants involved an allegation that Giuliani failed to register as a foreign agent. The search warrants come on the request of the same Manhattan federal prosecutor's office Giuliani himself once led when Giuliani came to prominence in the 1980s with high profile prosecutions of mafia figures. And the crime bill. That's being wrangled out in the House and Senate in the United States Senate ran into opposition from minority leader Mitch McConnell, who says police should have immunity in cases where they use force. Questions are continuing, but I do want to make note of something that I think some of you have observed. The number of policemen retiring across America is going up. There are continued reports of recruitment problems. And I think the heart of that is related to whether individual police officers who make a living busting up fights and engaging in physical activity to keep the peace are going to be individually liable for those actions. I think that's a sticking point Senator Scott has talked about repeatedly. Hopefully we can get an outcome here. And that's Mitch McConnell. Meanwhile, all police body cam videos of Andrew Brown Jr.'s fatal account and fatal encounter with cops in North Carolina will be viewed, but only by his family and not the media. That's a ruling just made by the judge in the case. 
The Pashquatank County judge just made the highly anticipated and controversial decision after hearing arguments for the release of police video in the case of Brown's killing, in which an autopsy revealed he was shot five times, including once in the back of the head. The judge ruled the footage should be available to the family within 10 days, but also ordered that the faces of any deputies and other identifying information in the video be blurred. The judge will reevaluate, making it available to more eyes in 30 to 45 days. The family's legal team said they were deeply disappointed by the judge's decision to keep the police footage from the public, saying, quote, in this modern civil rights crisis where we see black people killed by the police everywhere we look, video evidence is the key to discerning the truth and getting well-deserved justice for victims of senseless murders. It adds, just look at the murder of George Floyd. If the world had not seen that clear and disturbing footage, there might not, not, there might not have been an ounce of accountability for those officers. Brown's family lawyers vowed to keep the pressure up until the body cam videos are made public and they, quote, get to the truth. And tonight, President Joe Biden makes his first address to a joint session of Congress at 8 p.m. Eastern time. The speech marks Biden's first 100 days in office. Biden has stayed ahead of Donald Trump in public opinion polls with strong marks on handling the COVID-19 pandemic and the economy, even among some Republicans. But weakness on dealing with a simmering border crisis and gun control issues fodder for Republicans. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's black, will deliver the Republicans' rebuttal. He's the only black Republican in the Senate. Scott is a leading GOP voice on race and criminal justice reform, and he's popular with both the pro-Donald Trump and moderate rings of the party. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department provided more details about President Biden's proposal to boost IRS funding and strengthen compliance with tax laws, saying that these initiatives would generate $700 billion in net revenue over a decade. The additional details come after the White House released Biden's $1.8 trillion human infrastructure proposal. Treasury said the Biden's plan would provide the IRS with about $80 billion over a decade to be used in areas such as modernizing technology to help the agency identify tax evasion, hiring and training auditors, and improving customer service. The director of the Program on Inequality at the Institute for Policy Studies is Chuck Collins. He's author of a new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaire Billionaires pay millions to hide trillions. Collins says the super rich have been fleecing the public and dodging their taxes. Tax gap is enormous. The gap between what the system should be raising and what it is. It's like a trillion dollars a year. So if you can invest eight billion dollars and bring in a trillion dollars a year, mostly super rich people hiding their money in trusts and tax dodges, that's a good investment. How did we get there? Because I don't think anybody who uh, makes 15 or $20 an hour can escape the audit. Well, what's happened is the IRS has been decimated over the last 15 years. They've disinvested it. 18,000 people who used to work auditing the rich and the wealth defense industry. And I have a new book about this called The Wealth Hoarders, how billionaires hide, pay millions to hide trillions. There's a whole industry now focused on helping the very rich dodge taxes, and the IRS has not kept up with it. So, yeah, you're right. They're, they're more likely auditing people who get the earned income credit than they are people who are using fancy tax dodges. How do people dodge their taxes, the big money people? How do they do that? You and I get our taxes taken out of our paycheck as part of our withholding, but the wealthy have way more shell games. They can treat their income in different ways, they can create trusts, they can park their money offshore in tax havens. They hire tax lawyers and accountants and other people 
to help them hide their money. And that, and now that's the big industry that, you know, that doesn't affect 99.9% of the population. Where do they hide their money? You create an anonymous shell company. You move money that could be in Delaware or that could be offshore in the Cayman Islands. You create a trust where you sort of make it look like you don't actually have the money when you do. You create a tax dodge, a transaction that makes it look like you're losing money on paper, but actually you're making money. There's a whole bunch of mechanisms that this wealth defense industry uses to help the super rich hide their money. People know that the rich are extracting money from the real economy. They're not paying their fair share of taxes. It's gonna be a good fight. This enforcement, enforcing the existing tax laws is a really good place to start. We can do other things like raise the income taxes on global corporations and make the super rich pay a higher estate tax, but none of that will work if the system is voluntary for the rich, so we have to shut down these loopholes. High school graduates, low-income people, unemployed people, why are the poor of America rejecting calls and joining with conservative Republicans against these kind of things? Not all of them are. 63% of the population supports raising taxes on the rich. 75% of Republicans support the idea of a wealth tax on billionaires. There might be people who support Trump, but they also support the idea that rich people should pay their fair share of taxes. Is President Biden fulfilling the dreams of uh, AOC and the the uh, other more liberal members of Congress and the Democratic Party by doing this? These are all steps in the right direction as opposed to going the wrong way, but we need to go way further. We need to make bigger, bolder investments in in addressing climate change. We need to make some of these temporary supports for low-income people permanent. The Biden tax proposal is raise the corporate income tax rate, raise the income tax rate back to 39% for the super high incomes. But we, we should be looking at a wealth tax. We should be looking at taxes that would actually break up these democracy distorting concentrations of wealth. If we don't do this, we're just gonna be hearing phony austerity all over again. There's no money. No money for health care, no money for infrastructure. We can't afford to retrofit these buildings to make them post-fossil fuel. We're just going to hear that same old there's no money story when, in fact, there is trillions of dollars of wealth that could be deployed for these investments. Chuck Collins is director of the Program on Inequality at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of a new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. And one of the areas where spending could be reined in is the military-industrial complex, says David Swanson, the executive director of World Beyond War. Swanson says military spending has been climbing for years, including during the Trump years, and is the equivalent of many of the world's top military spenders combined. And Biden is actually increasing the Trump defense budget. What Biden did was propose a budget for the U.S. military that was initially reported as, you know, within a very teeny percentage of, of Trump's turned out to be a little bit higher. Basically, what Biden is telling the Congress and the nation is that Donald Trump got military spending by increasing it wildly, got it darn near right. It just needed to be a teeny bit more. And what's wrong with that? Don't we need to be protected from our enemies? <laughs> what enemies? This is the thing. This is Tom Friedman this morning in the New York Times. China is now a true peer and rival in, in the military. You look at the 2020 numbers that came out this week from the Stockholm Institute of Peace Research. China is spending 32 percent 
of what the U.S. spends on its military. And these are numbers that exclude huge amounts of U.S. military spending. So this is very conservative. And if you throw in NATO members and NATO partners, not including Russia, which is sometimes listed as such, China is at about 19 percent of what those are spending. If you throw in countries that the United States arms and funds with military aid, as they call it, China is at 14 percent of what those countries spend on their militaries. So this is what counts as a true rival. And of course, Russia is a teeny tiny fraction of what China spends, and Iran is almost non-existent in comparison. And so there's this pretense that there are these big evil enemies out there because they're needed to sell weapons. What's wrong with dumping a trillion dollars a year into military spending? Well, a teeny tiny fraction of it could transform the world. $30 billion a year could end starvation globally. $11, $12 billion a year could end the lack of clean drinking water globally. The Green New Deal, all of these spending bills that President Biden is proposing, the money is there. It's just being wasted on the military, and it's thereby killing a lot more people than are actually killed in wars. What about the threat of uh, unidentified flying objects that have been gripping the military for some time now? (laughs) You know, when you can't scare people with Russia or China, you need something else. And it's getting rather comical. But I think the the claims about Russia and China and North Korea and Iran are at least as laughable as the danger of UFOs and should be treated as such. We'll see, I guess. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And that's David Swanson. He's the executive director of the World Beyond War. And the Biden administration announced yesterday it would move forward with a dramatic deregulation of addiction medicine first proposed by the Trump administration in January. The change would allow almost any prescriber to treat patients using the drug buprenorphine. Currently, doctors, physician assistants and nurse practitioners must undergo a separate training and apply for a waiver before they're allowed to prescribe the drug to patients. More than 87,000 Americans died of overdoses during the 12-month period that ended in September 2020, according to estimates from the Centers for Disease Control, a steady increase in overdose deaths. The announcement represents the Biden administration's first major action on drug overdoses. But longtime drug and addiction treatment advocate, Dana Beal says buprenorphine is nothing new and as a maintenance drug does nothing to treat the underlying addiction. Beal is an advocate of a still illegal African rainforest entheogen called Ibogaine. That's a drug with ancient religious and cultural uses that Beal and many others tout as an effective treatment for the underlying craving for opiates and other drugs. Some studies have backed up those assertions over the years. He says the government is relying on a company called Reckitt. Benkiser Pharmaceuticals Incorporated uh, to produce buprenorphine as the commercial drug Suboxone, a treatment Beal says is itself highly addictive. It's not pure buprenorphine. This is Suboxone, which is different. Buprenorphine was used in the 70s and 80s in India, but they found out it can be diverted and sold on the street like methadone. People could shoot it up. So they invented composite where they put 1% naltrexone in the buprenorphine because it's actually an almost identical molecule when you take a tab of this stuff under your tongue the trexan does not go through the mucosa the buprenorphine does so you get like a analgesic opiate high but if you try to shoot it the trexan totally blocks the receptor by the way blocks the receptor both molecules block the receptor with 200 times 
the affinity of regular opiates. Once a person is on Suboxone, fentanyl and heroin and a whole lot of other opiates don't do that much to them, which is the reason they're doing this. But people are addicted to a heavy opiate for the rest of their life. And if for some reason their supply is cut off, they go into agony and it lasts. Well, you know how methadone lasts longer than four times longer than heroin withdrawal. Well, buprenorphine lasts four times longer than methadone. Why use it? Because it's the only thing that's allowed to be used. There's a monopoly called Rickett Benkheiser that canceled Ibogaine development at the National Institute on Drug Abuse in 1996 for crack. Their drug, Suboxone, doesn't work for methamphetamine or crack cocaine at all. It only works for opiates and to some extent alcohol. What's what's Ibogaine? You mentioned Ibogaine. Is that an alternative? Yes, Ibogaine actually gets people off drugs. What happens is 30 minutes after you take Ibogaine in the morning when you're sick, your withdrawal goes away. You go on an Ibogaine trip, but you don't have withdrawal the entire time, and then when you come down, you have no more withdrawal. Well, maybe a little twinge is a post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but So nothing. why aren't they using what you're describing as a superior drug for getting people? Rick and Benkheiser last year paid $1.4 billion to the Justice Department because it is a monopoly that has the only drug, and they were lying to actually getting doctors to lie to tell people that their drug was not addictive when, of course, it is completely addictive. What do you think should people do, people who are either addicted themselves or are loved ones of somebody who's going through this? You can make it work for you. Remember, you have to be the captain of your own ship. You have to want to quit. You have to be sincere. But if you sincerely want to quit some problem, you've got to actually decide that you're really going to quit and really follow through on it. Ibogaine works for, uh, according to one study, 41% of people who do it walk away for the rest of their life after one treatment or a short course of treatments. Suboxone is also used as a taper. In fact, that's what it's supposed to be used as. But only 8% succeed at tapering off opiates with Suboxone. Ibogaine is five times more effective. And that's advocate Dana Beal. Some drug policy officials have resisted the change in the past, citing buprenorphine status as a controlled substance. Trump officials argued in January that rising overdose rates compelled them to act. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. City Comptroller Scott Stringer was accused on Wednesday of sexually assaulting and harassing a woman two decades ago. Standing in the shadow of the David Dinkins Municipal Building in Manhattan, Jean Kim detailed allegations against Stringer, which he said took place during her time working as an intern for his 2001 campaign for public advocate. She said he appropriately, inappropriately and relentlessly pursued a sexual relationship with me. Adding, during his campaign events, I traveled back and forth to campaign events with him, and Scott Stringer repeatedly groped me, put his hands on my thighs and between my legs, and demanded to know why I wouldn't have sex with him. Kim appeared beside her attorney, Patricia Pastor, who said they are calling on the state attorney general and the city to investigate. Kim also called on Stringer to withdraw from the mayoral campaign and resign from his post as city comptroller. Stringer held a news conference on Twitter at 2 p.m. today, but it was deleted soon after. We got a copy of it here at WBAI where Stringer said, 
I feel it's important for me to address these allegations swiftly and directly. Firstly, I want to make it clear that I unequivocally condemn sexual harassment of any kind. Sexual harassment is unacceptable. I believe women have the right and should be encouraged to come forward and they must be heard. But this isn't me. I didn't do this. I'm going to fight for the truth because these allegations are false. For a several-month period around the time of my campaign, we had an on-and-off relationship over several months. She was 30. I was 41. This relationship started and ended before I met my wife, Elise. I believe it was a mutual, consensual relationship. I never used any force, made any threats, or did any of the things that are alleged. We maintained an amicable relationship for many years afterwards until 2013 when we could not find a role for her on my campaign for Comptroller. The accusation comes at a pivotal time in the race. Less than two months away from primary day, Stringer is sought to re-energize his campaign with a series of high-profile endorsements and the campaign's first TV ad by this week. Shortly after the press conference, reaction began, began coming in from some of his Democratic rivals. Catherine Garcia and Sean Donovan both called on him to drop out of the race. His campaign has also been endorsed by high-profile Democratic women lawmakers, including Senators Alessandra Biagi, Julia Salazar, and Assemblywoman Yulin Nu, who all have spoken against sexual harassment, most recently, recently calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign after he was accused of harassing multiple staffers in his office. And Amazon is opening a new facility in Long Island City, nothing like the sprawling center slated for Long Island City back in 2019. The agreement then to lure Amazon had been controversial from the start, stirring debate on gentrification and the use of public subsidies to lure companies. The 2019 deal might have brought as many as 25,000 employees to that area. Amazon's decision in 2019 was an early win for Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who scored an upset victory. Back in February of this year, the tech giant announced a much smaller delivery station on 21st Street in Queens. Today, the 21st Street site was the focus of a rally by supporters of the New York Heroes Act, recently passed by both houses of the state legislature and sitting on Governor Andrew Cuomo's desk, waiting for his signature. The act lays out enforceable rules on providing PPE, social distancing, and other methods to protect workers from COVID-19. The bill was introduced by Assemblymember Karinas Reyes and Senator Michael Gennaris. The bill faced strong opposition from dozens of state business and chambers of, of commerce. The lead sponsors of the bill and members of the New York Essential Workers Coalition spoke today to say it's time for governor, the governor to sign the bill. People died over the last year because of unsafe working uh, environments. Employers that were not taking basic precautions as it relates to PPE usage, social distancing, air filtration, all the things that we know are very common tactics that we use to avoid the spread of COVID right now. There were workplaces that were simply not taking appropriate steps to implement those kinds of things over the last year. And people died as a, as a result, many people. This bill would very clearly just set up requirements that the Departments of Labor and Health would set up, that employers would put in place. It would set up workplace committees that employees would be able to use to opine and monitor com compliance, and it would go a long way towards setting the tone nationally for the kind of measures required to protect people, not just the workers, but also customers at some of these businesses. Let me introduce you now to our leader in the Assembly, Assemblywoman, Karinas Reyes. We should have done this a very, very long time ago. Employers need 
clear guidelines. They are not scientists. They are not healthcare providers. Many of our industries, restaurant workers, farmers, they have no idea how to protect themselves or their workers from an airborne infectious disease. And it is our responsibility as a government to make sure that we provide those very clear guidelines for them um, so they can protect themselves. It's super, super important. And that also is a huge step for workers as a whole, not just within the context of this pandemic, but in labor. Is the leader of the Retail Wholesale Department Union, Stuart Applebaum. When people go to work each day, they should never have to worry that they're putting their lives at risk. Many of my union's members are essential workers. They work in supermarkets and drugstores and nursing homes and in food processing. They went to work every day, even during the worst days. So the rest of us, so society could survive. Unfortunately, some employers in New York and around the country demonstrated a blatant disregard for the health and safety of their own employees and didn't do enough to protect them. Sometimes it was knowingly, sometimes it was through ignorance. Calling these workers heroes is not enough. We need to treat them like heroes and we need to protect them. It is critical that we reopen safely. I'd like to introduce you to Judy Sheridan. How many workplace policies and practices are generated by bosses in ivory towers who never know what the workplace is like? Well, those of us in the front lines are excluded from having input of having a say in what's necessary to protect life and limb. This legislation should have existed before the deaths, the illnesses, the tragedies that destroyed the lives of so many workers and our families. But we commend Senator Gianaris and Assembly Member Reyes, my fellow nurse in struggle, by the way. It's never too late to right a wrong and to ensure that justice is served. No worker should suffer or die for simply doing her job, but we mourn our dead even while we fight for the living. Now it's up to the governor to ensure that this bill, as it's currently written, becomes yet another pillar in the centuries-long battle for worker justice. And Judy Sheridan Gonzalez is a member of the State Nurses uh, Union and a RN herself. Senator Michael Janaris began the clip. As of this broadcast, the bill has not been signed by Governor Cuomo. And in more COVID news, more than half of United States states have been or have seen a significant decline in new coronavirus cases over the past two weeks as federal health officials have begun to suggest the virus's trajectory is improving. As of Tuesday, the U.S. was averaging almost 54,000 new New cases a day, a 24% decline from two weeks ago and comparable to the level of cases reported in mid-October before the deadly winter surge. In New York City, with a stubbornly high caseload for months, the second wave is now apparently receding. And New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed an executive order today allowing both youth camps and overnight camps to operate this summer despite the pandemic. The state allowing is allowing day camps uh, pardon me, the state allowed day camps last year to, to stay open during the pandemic, but with restrictions. Now, overnight camps will also be permitted with similar protocols. The governor also said the state is likely to announce more reopening steps in the coming weeks if numbers keep improving and people keep getting vaccinated. And finally, 
A historic church on Staten Island has been vandalized. Police received a call Tuesday night about a shattered front door at the Rossville AME Zion Church. When a pastor arrived on Wednesday, she found a broken window leading into the church basement and a brick. Cops were called to search the premises. Reverend Jacqueline Knowlton said, when I look back at the shattered glass, I don't see the shattered glass as much as I'm reminded of it's somebody's shattered life who did this and the brokenness they must be dealing with to do such an unholy thing. Services have been virtual since the beginning of the pandemic, the church was founded over 169 years ago. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, April 28, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.